Well, good morning. I don't know if this is true for you, but I'm always a little dazed and confused when the time changes, because when I get up, half my clocks have converted and the other half have not. And it's dark when it should be light, and so that's my disclaimer if I'm a little disoriented this morning. (laughs) Uh, My name is Shane Sanders. I was asked to uh, preach for Grant this morning. Uh, I, uh, Janet and I have uh, gone to church here for around 17 years now, and I served as an elder at this church for about 13 years. I've been involved in other discipleship and life group ministries through the years. Um, um, but it is my distinct pleasure to get to share with you this morning. Uh, you know, for the last several years, I've made a personal study of the kingdom of God. Uh, I've read all the verses that, that address the topic. I've read a number of commentaries on it, and I've read a number of books even. Uh, I'm just fascinated by the kingdom um, because it's all-encompassing. It is the big picture. You know, theologians and church leaders observe that the kingdom is the central theme of the entire Bible. Let me give you a few quotes. Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost, and I've shared this before, uh, said that the great theme of God's kingdom program can be found throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. It is a theme that unifies all of Scripture. John MacArthur writes that the kingdom of God is the grand, overarching, and unifying theme of Scripture. He said, the idea of God's kingdom encompasses every stage of biblical revelation. And he points out that uh, the Hebrew words for king, kingdom, reign, uh, and throne appear 3,000 times in the Old Testament and another 160 times in the New Testament. Seminary professors, doctors Morgan and Peterson, write from first to last, Jesus' message underscores the kingdom of God. Dr. Carl F.H. Henry said that no subject was more frequently on the lips of Jesus Christ than the kingdom. Dr. John Bright said that had we to give the Bible a title, we might with justice call it the book of the coming kingdom of God. That is indeed its central theme. But, you know, we don't talk much about the kingdom. Why is that? Why don't we talk about the kingdom very much if it's so central to the whole Bible? Um, You know, uh, even at seminary, it's typically only one subtopic of one major topic of systematic theology, typically eschatology. Uh, There really aren't that many sermons and Bible studies on the kingdom. They seem to be somewhat rare. Uh, why is it that we seem to avoid the topic? This was just an observation that I made after, after reading about this and... Um, thinking about it over a period of time, I thought, why is it we don't talk about this very much? I'll tell you why. Here's my theory. Because evangelicals can't agree on what it is. (laughs) Um, Or how it's manifest. Or whether it's even manifest in the present church age. Uh, Does it only relate to some distant time and place? Uh, Or perhaps they pigeonhole it. Dr. George Eldon Ladd, who is known for his, uh, his writings and several books on the kingdom of God, Noted, there are few themes so prominent in the Bible which have received such radically divergent interpretations as that of the kingdom of God. Now, uh, it's my observation that the the theme of the kingdom has been used as a sort of theological platform uh, to support or launch a variety of uh, manifestations or movements uh, and causes. Some say that the exclusive manifestation of the kingdom is personal and spiritual in nature. And it certainly is personal and spiritual in nature. 
Um, some would say that the kingdom relates exclusively to the time of the millennium, when Christ physically reigns on the earth. And it certainly does relate to that. Um, some have used the kingdom as a theological platform for liberal social change in our country and elsewhere. And others have used it as a motivation for conservative political action. And some believe that the kingdom is primarily manifest through signs and wonders. Now, see if you've heard this term. Here's another phrase uh, that's um, been around. It's called the already not yet. Have you heard that one? The idea that the kingdom has arrived, but the fullness is yet to come. The kingdom arrived when Jesus came, but the fullness is yet to come when he comes again. And I believe that's true. Already not yet. I believe that's a good phrase. Now, I'm not a seminary-trained theologian, and I've said this before, but I am a lawyer, which means I am professionally trained to assume expertise on pretty much any subject. It's my job. It's my job. So what I'd like to suggest this morning, that the primary manifestation and outworking of the kingdom of God in the present church age is through discipleship, the disciple-making movement, and spiritual multiplication. And I'm going to make my case with one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible, the Great Commission. Now, let's start with the king's authority. And before we read the Great Commission, let's, uh, let's take a look at a timeline of biblical history. That was King Richard, by the way, Coeur de Leon. <clears throat> um, you know, when I was in... Um, well, historians will use timelines to understand history and to establish context. Back when I was in grad school many centuries ago, um, when I would take a break at lunch, I would go over, I went to A&M in grad school, I would go over to um, the uh, Rudder Theater because they had a, about a 15-foot uh, timeline up on the wall there in, in front of the auditorium, and I would go and study it at lunch. I was just fascinated by it. It was, uh, it was a work of, uh, I forget who did it, but it was, it was over 100 years ago because it stops at about 1890. <laughs> but uh, it shows across the thing, um, and you can buy it as a book now, the book, Wall Chart of, of History. You know, you'll see it in the, uh, the for sale part of Barnes & Noble or something. But uh, it, 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 bottom, the bottom two-thirds is world history and all the kingdoms of the world and all the peoples and how, where they all came from. And the top of the line is biblical history all the way back to Adam. And all the way forward through Jesus. And one of the observations uh, I made is, <laughs> kind of a blinding flash of the obvious here, is that year zero in all calendars of Western civilization is what? The advent of Jesus, isn't it? Year zero is the time of Jesus. <clears throat> Incidentally, he's the only person to ever split time. Um, and so where are we today? We are 2,000 years since the Advent, aren't we? 2,000 plus 18-ish. And, uh, and by the way, Jesus, uh, they, may have, they may have gotten a calculation off by, what, four to six years now? We, we, we sort of generally say that Jesus was born year zero, but it may have been four to six B.C. It turns out, you know, back in the old days, the, the calendar had only, what, 360 days a year and realized they were always missing a few days. Anyway, when they finally figured all that out, they had to make an adjustment. Um, but, you know, another observation I made is that uh, Abraham lived, I'm 2,000 years, we live now 2,000 years since the time of Jesus, the advent of Jesus. Uh, Abraham <clears throat> lived 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. Now, that's interesting. And then if you keep going back by measuring the age of each of the, 
of the people prior to Abraham all the way back, if you just go by the, the Genesis record, uh, it'll show that Adam lived about 2,000 years before that. So Adam lives roughly 4,000 B.C., Abraham 2,000 B.C. Let's go ahead and throw in King David, who lives roughly 1,000 B.C., or in the middle between Abraham and Jesus. Probably ought to go ahead and mention Moses, although I don't, don't have him on my slide here. He lives roughly around 1,400 B.C. Um, so uh, if, you, if you think of that, we exist today roughly a good, what, 4,000 years since the time of Abraham or 6,000 years at least since the time of Adam. That would put us at the begin, beginning of the early years of the seventh millennium. Hmm. I have a theory on that, but I'm going to get in trouble with Grant if I go into it. So we'll save that for another day. That's just my personal thoughts. Let's stick with the text. <laughs> um, God chose Abraham and said two things in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, didn't he? What did he say? He said, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See that twofold promise there? I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that nation was built through his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, right? And on his deathbed, Jacob said in Genesis 49:10 that the future king of Israel would come through his fourth son Judah, right? And then a thousand years after uh, Abraham, God chose who? David to be the king at roughly 1,000 B.C. to be the king of Israel and said of him in 2 Samuel 7:13, I will establish his throne or, excuse me, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever. When the king finally arrives, God says of him, I'm going to establish the throne through this man forever. And David, overwhelmed, responded a few verses later in verse 23 and said, Who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? Now, about 300 years later, at the time of Israel, at the time when Israel's in decline, Isaiah prophesies of the future Messiah, the King, the Christ. Remember, Messiah is just the Hebrew version of the term Christ, the Anointed One, referencing the future and coming King. What does he say in Isaiah 49:6? It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up. The tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See the twofold promise there? It's too small a thing just to raise up Jacob, although I will do that. I'm also going to send you as a light to the nations. Now, Isaiah also prophesied of the future king, the Messiah. The heir of David in Isaiah 9, 7, that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So 2,000 years after Abraham and 1,000 years after David, the king arrived, didn't he? The Messiah, the one and only king, arrived. Now, he taught frequently about the kingdom, didn't he? There are many passages in the Gospels that refer to him proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Let me give you a few sites. Matthew 4.23, 9.35. 
24, 14. Luke 4, 43, 8, 1, and 6, 6, excuse me, 16, 16, among others. Now, what did Jesus do? He accomplished the rescue of his people. That's the first thing he did when he got here, pretty much, isn't it? He accomplished the rescue of his people by satisfying the cost of their ransom so they could become part of his kingdom. He died a gruesome death for the sins of all men and then miraculously rose from the dead. And that led to the last recorded event in Matthew. So let's, let's take a look here uh, at Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. That lends some realism to it, doesn't it? The experience. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we often skip past verse 18 and go right to 19 and 20, don't we, when we read the Great Commission. But I'd like to suggest that verse holds the key to the rest of the passage. Jesus said here in this spot, at this time and place, all authority in heaven and earth has been, past tense, given to me. All authority. Now, that's an interesting term, exousia, if I have pronounced it correctly. And it means authority, rule, power. It has the same essence uh, of meaning as the term for kingdom. In fact, it is a synonym of the, for the word kingdom. As in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. And now the term kingdom, uh, basilia in Greek and malkuth, probably butchered that one, in Hebrew, both have the same primary meaning. Now, now we're prone to think of kingdom. When we say the word kingdom, you're probably pro, uh, prone to think of a place, a people, or a way of life, right? Now, uh, but those are secondary meanings. A person, I'm sorry, a, a place, a people, a way of life. These are the secondary meanings. The primary meaning of the word kingdom is the authority and the sovereignty of the king. The rule and reign of the king. You see, the kingdom of God is first and foremost the kingship of Jesus. It could have been translated in English that way too. Kingship. The rule and reign of the king, Jesus. In modern vernacular, we might call that leadership, sovereign leadership. We might call that lordship. Now, what does sovereignty mean? Sovereignty is supremacy and rule or power. We throw that around a lot, don't we? As sovereign, we believe in the sovereignty of God. But what, is, what does sovereignty mean? We live in a republic. We don't have a sovereign. We don't have a king. We don't have understood. It's been, it's been a pretty long time since we had a king. What, is, what does it mean to say God is sovereign? It means he is supreme in rule and in power. See, that's like a lordship, having power or authority. A sovereign is one possessing the supreme power and authority in a kingdom. See, the fact is, Matthew 28, 18 echoes, it echoes the ancient prophecy in Daniel 7, 14. 
Daniel's vision of the future way back in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 became a reality when Jesus stood up there and gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So let's take a look at that real quickly. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I've got verse 14 up here, but let me read uh, starting at 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Think about that. Jesus stood before the Ancient of Days, God the Almighty. And he was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, languages will serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It's eternal And it will never be destroyed. Now that prophecy was given 500 years before Christ. And its fulfillment began with the inauguration of the king when Jesus gave the Great Commission. See, Jesus' universal sovereignty is the essential basis for his commission. It's the king's commission. Now, if you consider the greatest events in all of human history, what would be number one? What would we have to say is the greatest single event in all of human history? Resurrection. That's right. Absolutely has to be. And the number two event would probably be, let's say, Advent, his birth, when he arrived. Okay? I'm going to put death and resurrection together, kind of. But resurrection, really, emphasis on the resurrection. I'd like to suggest that the third most important event in all of human history is the giving of the Great Commission. Because that's when Jesus actually extended those promises um, far beyond Israel, to Israel, but far beyond Israel. First to Israel, then beyond Israel, to every nation and people group across time to the end of the age. The universal kingship of Jesus, see, transcends every nation, culture, and generation to the end of the age. The kingdom started, in essence, physically with one man when God chose Abraham that became a family, that became a nation, Israel, and then invaded and reached out to every other nation in the world across time. And that kingdom has one king, one king. Jesus Christ. His pronouncement of the Great Commission not only signaled the inauguration of the king, but it signaled the end of the training period for his first 11 disciples, a passing of the baton, an official commissioning of his followers by the king himself. It was the beginning of the church age where every local church founded thereafter is like a colony or an outpost of the kingdom in a hostile foreign land dominated by the enemies of the king. Now, the church is not the kingdom. It is an outpost. It's like an outpost or a colony of the kingdom, very similar to the original colony. What's the first permanent English colony established in America? You history students out there. 
Jamestown. That's right. Now, Jamestown was a colony of the British Empire that ultimately extended over the entire world, didn't it? In fact, they were fond of saying at one point that the sun never sets on the British Empire. It is today called the United Kingdom, isn't it? Uh, and then, after Jamestown, there were other settlements and eventually a colony named Virginia, right? The first permanent English large colony in America. And then there were founded, what? How many others? Twelve, right. So there were originally 13 colonies. And, and look at us today. Several 400 plus, 400 years later, we stretch all the way across the entire North American continent, don't we? 350 million people. Now see, the church age and the advancing of the kingdom of God is a little bit like that. Much, on a much larger scale, on a global scale, over a longer period of time. The fullness of the kingdom is yet to come at the second coming of the kingdom. It definitely is. At which time the kingdom will become universal, eternal, the final reality, the only reality. <laughs> Think about it. The only reality. There will be no rival kingdoms left. They'll all be, every foreign, hostile, enemy kingdom will be destroyed and eliminated once and for all at the end of the age, won't it? Now let's address, let's look a little more closely at the kingdom mission. See, Jesus' enthronement as the king led naturally to his mission to build and expand his kingdom. Now, let's look closer then at uh, verses 19 and 20, the verses we're so familiar with. And let's do a little sentence structuring. I'm going to read it one more time. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right. You English students out there, what is the main verb in these two sentences? What's the main verb? Make disciples, isn't it? We often say, well, go, it's go, or it's denote. The main verb, the primary verb is make disciples, followed by three participles. Qualified by three participles. Go, baptize, teach. With the latter two being the most important, probably. Now, let's look at this word, uh, the, the verb for make disciples, and I'll probably butcher this, mathetuo. Grant, you can correct me later. <laughs> in the Greek, it's quite, an interesting, uh, it's quite an interesting term. It refers to those who place their trust in Jesus and follow him in lives of continual learning and obedience. It means not only to learn, but to become attached to the teacher and become his follower in doctrine and life conduct. Now, now let's distinguish that from other Greek verbs. Matteo and Monthano, which simply mean to learn without any particular attachment to the teacher. You see, a disciple believes in Jesus and makes his teaching the basis of his life and his conduct. He's a follower, a learner, who is attached to Jesus. Now, we need to account for the difference between the Greek and the Hebrew concepts of teaching and education because in America all these years later we've largely adopted the Greek concept of teaching and education. The Greek practice is a sterile, topical, passive classroom experience. 
The Hebrew experience, on the other hand, is hands-on, holistic, active, apprenticeship style, learning and teaching. See, Jesus used what's been called and referred to as the with him principle in uh, referring to Mark 3.14, where it says Jesus chose 12 that they might be with him. And then, and after he trained them, he would send them out to preach and do the ministry. Um, at the end of 2 Timothy, what does Timothy say to his, uh, his number one uh, protege in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 10? I'm going to paraphrase this. He says, look, Timothy, you have carefully followed my teaching, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my perseverance, etc. So this, this idea of making disciples is quite a rich, a very rich concept. And is much more involved than just learning a bunch of isolated principles that you, can, you just know. It's not the guy that learns the most information wins. <laughs> this is applied learning. Life change is what we're talking about here. Now, let's go back to the three participles for a minute. Go, baptize, teach. What does go mean? Go means go, doesn't it? It means go to them. But it also has that, carries the idea of as you go through life, as a way of life, as part of what you do. I'm investing in other people. I'm discipling others. Very much like parenting is. I go to work every day, right? Uh, I have all kinds of responsibility, but as I go through life, I am raising my children. They live at home with me. I invest in their lives. We create lots of experiences together, don't we? Baptize. Um, to baptize and teach are really sort of the, 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 the two main aspects of discipleship, evangelism and discipleship. And really, baptism is the last step in evangelism, isn't it? It's the last step when there is a public identification with the body of Christ. Public identification with the body of Christ, excuse me. And I want you to notice the very clear reference to the Trinity. Whose name do you baptize them in? If a lot of people want to dispute the Trinity, all you have to do is take them to the Great Commission. Because every disciple and follower of Jesus is supposed to be baptized in the threefold name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Co-equal. The Trinity. Teach. What does that mean? Instruction. Learning. And learning to live out the Christian life. Not just to learn facts about the Christian life. Not just to learn a bunch of intellectual doctrine, but to learn to live it out. It doesn't matter unless you, unless you live it. To put it into practice. To observe. To obey. This is the process of discipleship. Now, let me use a, uh, let me use a sports analogy. Any, any football fans in the room? Maybe uh, other fans? No? Okay, you'll still get this. <laughs> Um, you know, when you join, when you join, um, you join the football team, what's the first thing you do? You get a playbook. It has all the plays you're going to learn. And the first thing you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to mentally learn the plays. In fact, you're probably going to sit in the, you know, in one of the training rooms while the coach diagrams the plays and you probably even be tested over them. I can remember that way back in my high school days. Being tested on the football players, do you even know what to do? Now, but that's just the first step. The next step is to go out to practice and day in, day out, practice those plays, right? Over and over and over again. And then, in a live game situation, when I can execute that play and win, see, now, now I've learned. Well, that's what discipleship is like. When you can execute... <laughs> The Word of God in real life and win, 
then you're getting there, aren't you? And that's what discipleship's all about, isn't it? To be a disciple is to obey, to put into practice, and live out the teachings of Jesus and win at life. <clears throat> you know, what does Luke 6.40 say? I'm going to paraphrase it. It says that a disciple, when fully trained, will be like his teacher. Because the essence of discipleship is the process of becoming like Christ in every area of life. Like Christ in every area of life. In fact, we could say that in one word, the goal of the Christian life, once you become a Christian, is to become like Christ or Christ-like, isn't it? And, and not just in some areas, but every area of your life. Let me paraphrase Romans 8. Romans 8, 29, what does it say? It says that God's destiny for us as followers of Jesus is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. It's about spiritual growth. It's about spiritual transformation. And disciple-making is about spiritual multiplication, advancing the kingdom of God in the lives of others who in turn do the same. And I believe that a growing and maturing disciple is characterized by at least these five things. And I can fit most every area of life in one of these topical areas. This is my, this is my own personal guide that I use, and you could, you could describe them differently. You probably would. But I'm going to say um, these are the five key areas. Total devotion, holy character, loving relationships, sound doctrine, and personal ministry. Now, what do I mean by these briefly? <laughs> Total devotion refers to my love for God. The, my first and foremost relationship, and I could have used the term relationship, but I wanted to emphasize that it's something more than just the average relationship. It's my first and highest priority relationship, and it's not a horizontal thing. It's a vertical thing. I am devoted to God. I am devoted to Jesus, and it's total. It's whole life. That's the per first part of the Great Commandment, isn't it? Holy character, it means dealing with areas of sin in my life. Growing and developing the fruits of the Spirit in my life. It's both attitudes and action. That's, that's what obedience is. Loving relationships. Relationships that are characterized by agape love, respect, honor, esteem shown to others. Starting with my family. Starting with my wife. You want to know if I'm a loving person? All you got to do is ask Janet. And she'll give you the scoop. And, you know, I'll probably get a C plus maybe. <laughs> At times. <laughs> family, friends, community. She couldn't be here today, so that's a good thing, huh? <laughs> and, and, and outsiders, outsiders, people that are different than me, can I show them love, respect, and build relationships with them? Sound doctrine. I need to learn the primary truths of the Scriptures and be grounded in the Scriptures, starting with developing a regular time in the Word and prayer, a quiet time. Where I'm spending time in the Word regularly and in prayer. Everything flows from the abiding, John 15 says, right? Bacon and eggs, steak and potatoes, the Word and prayer. A regular part of my life. And then finally, personal ministry. Because I believe that everyone is called to get in the game. We're not here to make fans. We're here to develop players, right? Every one of us has been given a gift and can serve the body through our spiritual gifts just through regular service of any kind. And to be involved in the process of disciple-making, investing in others. See, it's pretty normal, isn't it, for people to grow up, get married, and have children. It doesn't always happen, but it's pretty normal. And so investing in those children, helping them grow up to maturity and adulthood is the goal of parenting. 
Well, see, that's the goal of disciple-making, and we all get to be a part of that. Well, I'll summarize by, um, by saying that the reality of the kingdom of God is the basis and the foundation for discipleship. Fundamentally, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus in every part of your life and in the lives of people everywhere. And I've come up with a new illustration I'm using now. It's got kingship, discipleship, and leadership, sort of a progression of we begin with the kingship of Jesus that leads to the discipleship of his followers, of people, and that ultimately should lead to leadership, the developing of disciple makers and leaders to continue advancing the kingdom. All these three are connected, aren't they? Um, I'm kind of a hack historian, and one of the guys I've, I've read a lot about, and I've been to his home a number of times is uh, George Washington. Everybody knows who George Washington is, don't you? First president of the United States, you know, the commanding general revolutionary army. He's a highly accomplished man, a very, a very good and interesting guy on a lot of levels. Um, but one of the things I've found interesting about him is he had one huge regret throughout his life. And it's kind of interesting. You think, gosh, the guy's done so much. He's known... You know, he's known as the father of our country, and incidentally, do you know why? Do you know why? I mean, we had a lot of founding fathers, so-called. Why does he get the moniker, uh, the founding father? Okay, I'll say that for another day. Nobody knows, do you? You don't really know, do you? Okay, that's another issue. George Washington's regret is that he never acquired a royal commission. He never got a commission from the king of Great Britain. And he wanted that more than anything as a young man in his 20s. He was a militia officer and served, you know, in the French and Indian War. Actually, they accused him of starting the French and Indian War <laughs> in, uh, in America. Um, and he desperately wanted a, an official royal commission from the king and that's the one thing he never got, and it bugged him to the end of his life. And you think, wow, what an interesting thing. Uh, you know what? We have an official commission from the king, the greatest king of all time, the one and only king. And what an incredible honor that is. You think about that honor. We get to be a part of the greatest enterprise in all of human history. We have the high privilege to join in that universal mission to advance the kingdom of God in the lives of men everywhere. And now you're thinking, well, look, I'm just one guy. I'm one guy. What possible difference does my life really make? I mean, really? Am I really? And I, and I see, I asked, uh, I, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir right here because I asked myself that a lot. You know, what possible difference do I really make? One person. Well, you know what? I, I, I have to re- remind myself uh, of the history for, that comes from the scriptures and the destiny that I find in prophecy to gain perspective and understanding of where we stand in the present day, to carpe diem, to seize the day, does it matter? And and one of the places I find some real inspiration is in uh, is at the end of the book of Colossians in Colossians four seventeen. I love this little verse here. At the end of Colossians, Paul singles out one unknown guy for a personal um, motivation, a challenge. To a guy named Archippus. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Archippus. Do you know anything about this guy? Yeah, probably not. A few of you do. Um, he's only mentioned in one other place in Scripture, and it's in Philemon. He's referred to as a fellow soldier in the intro there. But Paul says, wait a minute, i got one more thing to say before I close out this book. Say to Archippus, 
Take heed to the ministry you received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. And that's a carpe diem kind of statement, isn't it? In the NIV it says, see to it that you complete the work you received in the Lord. The ministry of this one unknown leader and disciple maker mattered enough to God to warrant a verse of Holy Scripture. The ministry of one man, one man that we don't know anything about. You know what? I'm like that guy. I am like that guy, and so are you. So let me conclude by saying that um, God has given all authority on heaven and on earth to Jesus Christ, the anointed and inaugurated king, and the king has delegated that authority to his disciples to expand the kingdom throughout the whole world to the end of the age. Why in the world, why would I waste my life on anything else? Now, I've got a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot of things we have to do, right? Why would my highest priority be anything else other than this? This is the greatest single mission in the history of the world. And I get to be a part of it. And so do you. If you choose to be. Choose to sign up and get involved. God has coronated his king, Jesus, and Jesus has commissioned his disciples through the ages to make disciples and advance the kingdom in the lives of men and women everywhere to establish the rule and reign of the one and only king, the one and only king. This is the big job. This is the grand purpose, the great adventure. The kingdom is the only thing that lasts. It's the only thing that matters. And the fact, at the end of the day, it's the only thing left. It's the only thing that exists. It just doesn't look that way today. It's like the seed in the garden. It appears to be small and insignificant, maybe. And there are a lot of competing enemy kingdoms. But at the end of the day, they're all gone, and this is all there is. Which is to say, this is all there is now, if you choose to live that way. Tell you what, let me close with this last verse in Revelation eleven fifteen. Because here's how the story ends. Here's how the story ends. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you've chosen to reveal to us the reality of your kingdom and what you're doing in our day. You've revealed to us what you've done in times past and eras past and what will happen going forward. We're valuable to you. You love us. You've chosen us to be a part of your kingdom and you've given us the high privilege and calling of participating in the advancing of your kingdom in the lives of men everywhere. I pray, Lord, that you would find us faithful to that end. Use us as you would, as you've gifted us, Um, to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.